0: the topic today is invisible life invisible life that's a topic invisible life and so if you want to turn to colossians chapter 3 rain was reading it yesterday colossians 3 yeah <laughs> I think guys Aaron's been offended by the fact that Colorado would have missed the playoffs, so he's making <laughs> comments <laughs> okay, <laughs> so if you can turn to Colossians three one to three Colossians three one to three Colossians three one to three we're talking about this life called the invisible life and Uh, resurrection life is invisible and must be made visible by a people who have that life and so uh, just look at Colossians 3 verse 1 to 3 and it says that since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let me read that again. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So resurrection life is an invisible life uh, and must be made visible, but uh, I just want to look at, list and look at maybe five aspects of this life called resurrection life that will kind of give us an idea of how to go about it. Uh, So if I looked at those five aspects, the first one would be uh, resurrection basics, resurrection basics. The next one would be that we have a resurrection God or a God of resurrection. The third one would be resurrection hope because this life is a life that's full of hope. The fourth one would be what this resurrection life actually entails. What's it like? What does it feel like? And then the last one would be for now would be resurrection faith. How do we live this life? So these are the five things that I would like to examine. Um, so let's start with the first one resurrection basics, resurrection basics. If you have a questions, guys, feel free to send it to one of the guys here, and they'll read it out. Uh, resurrection basics. Guys, um, we've got to understand this, and uh, I think Dano was referring to this on a small vid- video that he put together for Bahrain. But um, uh, when, you, when you think of uh, Jesus' death, you need to understand, hey, guys, make sure I'm not going out of the frame sometimes when I keep walking. Yeah. yeah um Jesus's death was not proof enough that the sins of the world were taken away Jesus's death was not proof enough that the sins of the world were taken away I I could die for you I mean not all of you I could die for at least two of you but here's the thing just because I die for you doesn't mean your sins are taken away Jesus's death was not proof enough that the sins of the world were taken away If the sin bearer was actually sinless, then resurrection would prove it. Because only a sinless man could rise from the dead after dying for others. Just think of that, eh? That had Jesus come down to the earth and died, that would have not necessarily meant that our sins were forgiven. He had to rise again because it's in his rising again. It is in his resurrection that we now know that Here was a man who was sinless, who actually bore the sins of the world and the only way he could rise again was if he was sinless and therefore now we know that our sins are taken care of. Otherwise, it isn't true. And so two factors determined Christ's resurrection. Two factors determined Christ's resurrection. The first factor was uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, and it says that it was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him. Acts chapter 2 verse 24. Why was it impossible for death to hold him? Because you can only pay the wages of, you can only pay death to someone who has committed sin, because the wages of sin is death. Therefore, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus Christ down because he could not pay, be paid the wages of sin because he had never sinned. So that's the first factor that determined Christ's resurrection, that it was impossible for death to hold him. The second factor that determined his resurrection was that it was the Holy Spirit who raised Christ who raised Jesus to life. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus to life. On one hand, death could not hold him. On the other hand, it was the Spirit of God who raised Christ to life. Go read Romans 8, chapter 11. Uh, sorry, Romans 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11. It says there in Romans 8, 11, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Or look at um, uh, Ephesians 1.19, which we just read. Ephesians 1.19. Ephesians 1.19. It says in Ephesians 1.19... Uh, no, it's not 1.19. Yeah, it is. Ephesians one nineteen Ephesians 1.19. The incomparably great power for us to believe. The power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. These are the two things that that caused Christ to rise from the dead. And now, this then translates or outworks in our life. That's how it works. Any questions? Oh, actually, before you ask questions, just look at one more thing. This is This is quite crazy. You know, all of us, because we are born in sin and we have the penalty of death over us right from when we are born, we all are wombed in a mother whose name is Wages of Sin is Death. That's the name of the mother who carries us in her womb. And so we, we are born with the sentence of death over us. When Christ died, what happened was this womb was broken open. But it's when Christ rose from the dead that the stillborn that now was freed from death had life come into him and he now becomes alive. Death alone, Christ's death alone does not make me alive. Christ's death delivers me from death. Christ's life raises me to life. Christ's death is not what gives me life. Christ's death breaks me from the tomb of death. Christ's life, his being raised is what injects life into me. Any questions? Those are resurrection basics, eh? Now let's talk about the resurrection. Let's talk about uh, him being a God of resurrection or a resurrection God. A resurrection God. You know, it's become a habit with him. Resurrection is the pattern of your God. Resurrection is the pattern of your God. You, You must embrace this. There are certain things that are so definitive about your God, That the more you embrace it, the more you will enjoy this character of his. Resurrection is a pattern of your God. You see it in Eden. In the book of Genesis, you also see it in Revelation. Right through, from the beginning to the end, resurrection is a pattern of God. So in Eden, you see him resurrecting lives that uh, uh, that were pronounced dead. Adam and Eve, dying you will die. And instead, God steps in and begins to bring them back to life you go further and you see Abraham. In Romans 4 verse 19, it says Abraham considered his condition and considered himself as good as dead. And out of that death, God brings life. You go back a little, you go down a little further and you come to Isaac. It says of Isaac in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 that Abraham looked at Isaac on the altar and he realized that Isaac was as good as dead and to get him back would be God bringing him back to life. You look at Jonah in Matthew 12, 40, words that Jesus himself spoke and he says the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah where for three days and three nights he will be in the belly of the fish but he shall rise and he was talking about himself. You look at the river of God in Ezekiel 47 verse 9. You're talking about swamps and marshes that are dead and the river of God that flows from under the temple of God begins to give life. You look at the two witnesses which symbolize the church in Revelation 11.11 and the whole earth clapped its hands as it saw the two witnesses dead. And then the breath of God came in and these that had laid dead for three and a half days come back to life. The point is this God is a God of resurrection. He brings life into decay. He brings life into barrenness. He brings life into dry bones. He brings life into tombs. He brings life where there is death. I mean, remember that song? Where there was death, you brought life, Lord, and you lifted me up. Hey, embrace this nature of God and you will find that a whole lot of situations will begin to change because it is natural for you to see the pattern of God in things that are decaying, things that are barren, things that are dry, things that are tombed, things that are dead. I almost think uh, that there are times when I begin to relish the fact that something is dead because I know that this creates now an opportunity for me to join God in making history. That's the thing, eh? If you don't begin to see God as one who has a pattern of resurrecting, then you will not be able to join him as he goes about in history bringing back to life things that are dead. You have no idea what I think God is going to do in this pandemic. This is decay. This is death. And in the middle of it is a God who resurrects. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 the plans I have for you are good was spoken during a time of great calamity we just take Jeremiah 29 11 you read the passages above and the passages below and you realize that God is speaking in a time of tragic, tragic calamity that's when he begins to speak and what do you think he's doing now this is the God who rubs his hands in glee this is the spirit of God who enjoys stepping into chaos You know know some people, right? If they know you're hungry, there'll be soup and food at your door. Doesn't happen to me, but uh, uh, happens to some people. Or if they know you don't have money, they supply you money. Or if they know you need comfort, they're there with comfort. And you begin to expect that of people. This must be something you expect of God at a time like this. This is a resurrection God this is a resurrection God and there is no time like this time and the earth needs a pattern to now break forth and it breaks forth through a people eh because the Spirit of God now operates through a people. The second thing is or the third thing is this idea of resurrection hope resurrection hope hey if there's anyone watching who doesn't know Jesus Christ eh then I'm saying to you man It's such a bad idea to keep postponing, welcoming this person who is alive and who gives life. Yeah? Just begin the journey today. Begin the journey today. I'm not going to lead you in a prayer of salvation. I'm just going to ask you to start this journey with Christ today, saying, I'm hearing and I know that you are real, so please let today be the beginning of me knowing you and walking with you I hope that happens for you man if you don't know this Christ the third thing is resurrection hope (laughs) I've said this before and I say it again if the risen Christ is in you if the risen Christ is in you If this risen Christ that we are talking about, that we sang about, that we weep about, if this risen Christ is in you, then in all things, then in all things good and bad, then in all times good and bad, then in all circumstances good and bad. If this risen Christ is in you, then in all things, then at all times good or bad, you must have, you must have an expectation. You must have an expectation of His presence, His goodness, His power and laughter. So here's a question I'm asking you. If this Christ, if this risen Christ is in you then in all things, you must have, it's not even a choice, you must have an expectation of his goodness, His presence, His power, and His laughter. Just look at that, eh? Hey, think of it, eh? Uh, at present, you are locked in with the with the healthiest person on the universe, Jesus Christ. You are quarantined with with the healthiest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. What do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to come out really whole. In the process, what you need to develop is an expectation that it doesn't matter how things are. This risen Christ living in me means that every day in every situation, I have an expectation of his goodness. I have an expectation of his presence. I have an expectation of his power. And I have an expectation of his laughter. don't know if you think like that. This morning when something was uh, going wrong before I came here, I quickly flipped to this. eh? It was like, Father, but then there is your son, Jesus Christ. And even though this situation is happening and it's not pleasant and it's happened before and I'm a little scared of it. Now, oh God, I switch to this thing where if Christ, if the risen Christ lives in me, then Jacob will always in good times and in bad times have An expectation, a confident expectation, an assurance of your goodness to break forth, your presence to be very evident, your power to be strong, and your laughter, your laughter. And this is brought to me by the Spirit, but this is the way we need to think, eh? Go ahead, Derek. Yeah, how do we walk in this expectation without being insensitive insensitive to the fear and the grief of others? Yeah, um, the way you walk with this expectation uh, is by uh, having it, uh, let me put it this way, how I express this depends on the Conditions around me, but I always carry it within me. I'll always carry it within me. When I go to pray for a sick person, my expectation is that the power, the compassion, the goodness, the laughter, and the presence of God will affect the sick person. When I go to pray for a dead person, I really mean this. When I go f- to pray for a de- dead person, my expectation is that the presence, the power, the laughter, and the goodness of God will affect the dead person. The few times that I've gone to pray for the dead, for dead people that has been my expectation. This doesn't mean that I start singing songs of joy and hallelujah while I'm praying for a person that is sick or for a person who's hurt or for a person who's dead but within me is this expectation. Mm. This is the expectation that Christ had when he went uh, and met Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 because he knows the nature of his father the nature of his father is that of a resurrection God and so he goes to the tomb and within him is his expectation that my father is a resurrection God and then he also knows that within him now is the power the goodness the presence and the laughter of God he does not necessarily burst out in laughter he actually begins to weep he also feels indignant at times other times he weeps but within him the expectation is solid it is fascinating how the idea of intercession, which we would have talked about on Friday had we gone into explaining what priests look like, the idea of intercession is empathizing with those that you pray for while identifying with God's intent for them. Intercession is empathizing with those that you pray for while identifying with the intent of God for them. Where intercession goes wrong here on earth is we begin to empathize with people and their desires for themselves. Or we empathize with people based on their condition. Jesus actually at times would choose not to empathize because he knew that that empathizing would lead him to betray the intent of his father. classic example is when Jairus' daughter is dead and people have surrounded her. And all these stories are resurrection stories. Jairus' daughter is dead, people have surrounded him, and he should have empathized. He should have mourned with the mourners. Instead, he realizes that to bring forth what his father wants, in terms of his God being his father being a resurrection God, he drives the mourners out and then goes and says, This is the intent of God. Now that's how we work this out. So thanks for that question. Guys, there's another beautiful scripture in 1 Peter one three to seven. First Peter one three to seven. First Peter one three to seven. First Peter one three to seven. And here's what it says. It says, uh, "Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope." which is the song we sang, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold Which perishes even though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Resurrection hope does three things based on that scripture it shields you, resurrection hope shields you, it endures trials, it endures trials. And proves the genuineness of your faith. Proves how genuine your faith is. How can you say that from that scripture? Because it says so. That, listen, praise God that now we have this living hope that comes because of the resurrection of Christ. And it does a few things. One, it shields you, it protects you, it keeps you. But that isn't where it stops. It helps you endure trials. When trials come, because you have living hope, you don't then begin to spite God. You don't thumb your nose at God. You don't say God does not exist. You don't uh, look at him and cloud his face with your thoughts. Instead, you begin to endure trials because you know that here is a God who has brought you resurrection hope. And then finally, it proves genuine faith. As in, faith only exists because there is assured hope. Faith would not exist if there is no hope. Just think of that, eh? If you did not have assured hope, you would not have faith. And so resurrection hope does this for you. It shields you, as it protects you, it it has you endure trials because you know that it's only a matter of time before things break forth and as you endure trials it proves genuine faith because if there is no trial there is no proving of genuine faith it's a muscle you don't exert it it doesn't grow any questions Uh, Yes. You know, the Bible says that one of the ways we purify ourselves, um, it's in one of the last books of the Bible in the New Testament, it says one of the ways we purify ourselves is by um, embracing the hope that Christ will return to take us to be with him. And so um, uh, there's two things I want to say about uh, living with the hope of being being with Christ or living with the hope of Christ's return. One, that um, God didn't want us to live in that hope in a way that makes us desirous to escape the earth. That is what a lot of Christians in the past and even the present do. eh? We're always talking about Christ coming back so that we can escape out of this earth so that we can leave the other wicked people behind. Hey, just a couple of years ago or thirty years ago or five years ago you were one of those wicked people. Thank God it didn't happen then eh? It's odd how the righteous forget how wicked they were. So on one hand that's the extreme uh, we take where this living hope becomes so consuming that we want to leave the earth so that we can be with them. But I would say when it comes to this living hope say what Paul said to be present with you is profitable to be absent with you is to be with the Lord I want to develop that part right now I'm really enjoying the earth I like being on the earth I like what God is doing on the earth I'm in no hurry to leave the earth But I also know the Bible says that I purify myself by this hope that God is coming, that this world will be changed. I look forward to the earth being changed. I look forward to the newness of the earth. I look forward to things being restored. I look forward to no tears, no fears, for things to be made new. Yes, I look forward to that. But I wish I would develop this hope of being with him to a greater degree because it actually purifies you, eh? You know, I was reading... um, just recently, that if you had to wait to meet, if Christ was here in flesh, like if he hadn't left the earth, if he, if he was here in flesh and you were a believer and you wanted an audience with him, it would take you 25 years before you got three minutes with him. Can you believe that? There are so many people on the earth that if he were to meet with each person, it would take you 25 years before you got three minutes with him. Now don't start sitting and calculating whether that's true. If it's not, I'll let you know next week. But the point is, thank God he is spirit, eh? And that he is with me. That the, he never goes home. That he can't say, you can't come home today. Does that kind of answer the question? I hope so. Because I don't think it fully answers the question. One more yeah. Can you yeah. Yeah. So okay what does it mean to have the expectation of his presence his goodness his power and his laughter guys th- those four things when you put them together uh, it, it 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 symbolizes the glory of god the glory of god is joyous the glory of god is joyous one of the ways we express joy is through laughter i want to bring in the deliberate concept of laughter because christians don't equate laughter with god but i'm telling you man One of the things that you will see when you actually see him face to face is he is highly enjoyable, he is joyous, and he laughs. Haven't you met people who are joyful, who crack really good jokes and laugh? Where do you think it came from? Came from Anything good here on earth that is enjoyable came from a father who invented it. And so instead of using the word joy, which makes it so Christian, I wanted to use the word laughter. that you must have an expectation of his presence, his goodness, his power, and laughter. Uh, I wish I could show you the, the silly things that sometimes happen with Phoebe, uh, where uh, Jeevan will go tickle her feet and uh, make sounds like I mean, uh, he makes sounds like that, and Phoebe just begins to uh, start laughing, and when Phoebe begins laughing, then her parents start laughing. There is this easy laughter what is perhaps the most pleasant sound in the face of the earth? The laughter of a child. I mean, I'm not a dad and I think so. This God is a God of great joy and laughter, man. Let me go back to the question that uh, Derek had conveyed earlier on. This idea of living hope with Christ's return or living hope and we go to be with him. Many times when I've been with people who are suffering and uh, who are close to death, I am so grateful that there is around the corner a life waiting that is so worth exchanging. Where you leave life here to become someone who now sees Christ face to face. Which is why Paul then says in First Corinthians that why should we be like the rest of the world that grieves? Don't you know that It's okay to grieve for a while, but my God, man, you have been called to a hope that awaits you. You leave this body behind you and you're instantly with the most amazing being in the entire universe. Today when I was driving here, I was thinking, okay, so if I walked in heaven and held your hand, would I still be able to feel that hole in your hand that Thomas put his fingers in? It was just a thought. I think it will freak me out a little, but then I'd probably start crying. Let's go to resurrection life. What kind of life is this? Resurrection life. Resurrection life. Hey, this is mind-blowing, man. Just uh, I'll try to say this without uh, getting excited, so let me sit down, which may or may not work. Because if I get excited, I might miss out on being able to describe it the way I should. So, guys, resurrection life is the limitless life that Christ himself personally, presently possesses. Resurrection life is that limitless life that Christ presently, personally possesses. I mean, we imagined Christ while we were singing and worshipping, right? So the life that Christ personally presently possesses his resurrection life and the strange thing is this is the life that he shares with me by his spirit now i have not been given some other polished new eternal life it's not it's not a secondary version it's not a it's not a lower iphone thing that i have been given The very life that Christ presently possesses is the life that he shares with me right now. The life that he possesses right now in heaven is the same life that I possess right now. His private life has become mine. It scares me to say it because one, I can't wrap my head around it. Two, it is overwhelming. What kind of God is this? How common does he want to become? His private life has become mine. His private life has become mine, which also means that I can draw my thoughts, my emotions, my interests, my attitudes from him. His private life has become mine, which then means that I can actually draw my thoughts, my emotions, my attitudes, my interests from him. I can hear you chewing, Josh. <laughs> you know, in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-11, to 11, it says, and the spirit, who knows what, uh, a person best, his spirit. Who knows God best? His spirit. And he says, it's this spirit that I've given to you. So that you may know the ways of God. You may know the things he's given you freely. It it, it boggles my mind. I'm sorry, I have to stand. It's very hard to preach these things sitting down. It boggles my mind that I actually share his private life. That his private life has become mine. And that I can draw my thoughts, my emotions, my interests, my attitudes from him. Here's another thing about this life. This life is pulsing with the benefits of the age to come. This life is pulsing with the benefits of the age to come. What are the benefits of the age to come? Healing, joy and laughter, power, love, but more than anything else I think presence. There is a time coming when I will constantly, forever, Behold his presence face to face. But till that happens, I am already tasting his presence without seeing him face to face. This is the kind of life we possess, guys. Do you realize how this invisible life must be made visible through this jar of clay? Now, do you realize why Paul says that treasure, treasures in jars of clay? This is the treasure. This is the treasure. I'm pulsing with a life that has in it the benefits of the age to come. Why is it that I'm joyful when uh, things are going wrong? Why is it that it doesn't matter how dark things get, there's always a way that either joy bursts out or joy bursts in? Because the life I possess is actually severed from the old order of the world. It is severed, it's been cut off. I, I, it was like a cord was cut when I was born again. A cord was cut when Jesus rose from the dead. Joy bursts forth. Healing is appropriated. Why? Because there is a time coming when there will be no sickness, no fear, no tear. But I already begin to taste and enjoy that life. I've enjoyed it for now 31 or 32 years, man. I taste his love. And I know his presence. These are benefits of a life that come from an age beyond. It's a life that is severed from the dominion of the old world order. As in, this world has absolutely no hold or influence upon this life that I possess. This world may affect my flesh, my thinking, but it cannot touch the life that I possess. Because it's not from, it's not from mortal sperm. First Peter one twenty three, you have been born again not with mortal sperm, but with immortal seed. The quality of life called resurrection life is completely different, guys. It cannot be compromised by sin. Ha! Just think of that. Just think of that. This life that I possess, that I share with Christ, who is indissolubly present in the uh, face of the Father right now, this life that I possess cannot be compromised by sin. This life that I possess cannot be compromised by uh, uh, sickness, death, or decay. This life that I possess can never be deceived or seduced by Satan. Rock solid, man. Why is it important to understand resurrection life? Because the more I understand the life I actually possess, the more I'll behave like I actually am. The more I understand the life I possess, the more I'll behave like I actually am. (laughs) Is it any surprise then that this life can even quicken your mortal body while you're on earth? Leave alone quickening you where in the flash of an eye your bodies will be transformed into immortal. This is a life, the life that I possess is a life of great love, great power. It's a life that is fearless. It's a life full of shalom. 2 Timothy 1.7 talks about this. The spirit I have given you is not a spirit of timidity or cowardice. This this resurrection life that I have, this ascended life that I have, is a life of great power. You know, I I, want to say this to you. Guys, sometimes when your body is weak, sometimes when your head is uh, clogged, sometimes when your physical energy is low, Uh, fall back into that reserve called resurrection life. Dive into the real life that you have. Yes, this physical life can sometimes feel like it's it's veining it's it's being sapped but I'm telling you there is I've done this and I know it for a fact that there is a reserve and that reserve is actually greater in strength than your physical life that you can literally go back into and draw from the unlimited reservoir of resurrection life that you share with Christ himself This life is a life of great love, I am capable of it, of great power. It's a fearless life, fearless life. What can it be afraid of? It is, whose life are you talking about? You're talking about the life of Christ at present, right next to the Father. His life is what you're sharing. He shares his private life with you. And it is a life of great shalom, wholeness. It is the ascended life of Christ. It is the ascended life of Christ. uh, I'm looking forward to talking about ascension. Because death does something, resurrection does something. But my God, if Jesus had just risen and not ascended, we'd still be in bad shape, man. This life that I have is not just risen, it is the ascended life of Christ that I possess. It's the same quality of life that the ascended Christ presently has. Which means then that this life that I possess is actually seated above satanic thrones and powers. Do you realize why if we begin to think like this, if we begin to uh, discover or explore this, why the devil would hate it? Because you would begin to know how this life operates. It is the ascended life of Christ seating me in heavenly places above Satan's thrones and powers. And as you begin to go down this road, you become a little less fearful and a little more fearless. I mean, if you were related to the king of a certain nation, it does not matter which part of the kingdom you go to. You know that your life is shared with him and that you are indissolubly present in his throne room even though you're in a little village on the outskirts of the kingdom. Unfortunately, because this resurrection life is carried in a physical body that experiences the limitations of sin, I get dull or I am dulled to the immeasurable capacity of this life. Because we carry it in this body. Because this body uh, is prone to decay. Because this body is prone to uh, deception, seduction, and sin. Because this body has limitations. Because this body will die one day. We look at this body and we are not able to see the life that is carried within this body. You must understand Paul's reasoning of treasures in jars of clay. And he says, I realize that this outer body is fading, but my God, I have a treasure inside. I realize that even though I'm dying on the outside, the inner man is being renewed. Why does Paul keep saying this? Because he found out that even though he's beaten, even though he's lost, even though he's uh, got... Uh, problems that prevent him from functioning well that the inner man within him, the spirit man within him keeps getting stronger, keeps getting stronger, keeps getting stronger why? Because at some point Paul realized ah shucks I've got something inside me that is far greater than what, is, what it is encased in it's a way to live guys that we must explore especially during times like this eh? this is when this invisible life should become so visible It is a life that is hidden in Christ but will appear in blazing brilliance when Christ appears. Man, I'm telling you, when Christ appears, why do you think this treasure will show? Because these bodies will be replaced and then you will see us in our glory. I say to the earth, you will see the sons of God in its glory. I say to creation, wait, wait, the day is coming. You've been groaning to see the manifestation of the sons of God. The day is coming. Our life is hidden in Christ, but I say to you creation, I say to you earth that you will see the manifestation of the sons of God in their glory. We are hidden in Christ now, but when Christ comes, we shall appear with him in glory. This awaits us, man, begin to take a grasp of this life that we have. It's a marvelous life that we possess. Marvelous life. After all, whose life is it? It's his man. Let's go on to resurrection faith. Resurrection faith. Guys, <laughs> resurrection always breaks into situations and is accelerated in response to your faith. Resurrection life always breaks into situations and is actually accelerated in response to your faith. In 2 Kings 4.34, you see that with a Shunammite woman. Her son is dead. Gehazi goes with Elisha's staff to place it on the sun. Nothing happens. And they ask her, So, how are you? And she says, It is well. It is well. What a statement of faith, eh? What is her expectation? That her sun will rise. Whenever faith is exerted, resurrection life bursts forth because it is the pattern of your God. He's a resurrection God. You look at Lazarus Mary and Martha summon Jesus are struggling through this idea of I wish you had been here earlier but yet at the same time there is faith there you see Talitha Jairus's daughter the little girl the little child in Mark chapter 5 verse 34 Jesus says to the man don't worry just believe I know the others are saying she's dead but don't worry Resurrection breaks in. You look at Acts chapter 9 verse 34. A woman called Tabitha. Or Dorcas. They sent for Peter. Resurrection breaks forth. Or the rising of the dead happens. You see the valley of bones. Ezekiel 37. And it says in Ezekiel 37. That as, uh, uh, as Ezekiel began to prophesy in faith. A huge valley full of. Dry bones must have been a battle that had happened a generation ago because the bodies had been stripped and the bones were dry. And in that dryness now, resurrection happens. For that matter, you look at Marcus, who's sitting at home, who I was emailing yesterday. Resurrection life brought him back to being alive, right now sitting at home and praising God guys the agent of transformation in each instance is the spirit of the living god the agent of transformation i didn't say the agent of reformation i said the agent of transformation because resurrection life transforms resurrection life doesn't polish you resurrection life doesn't r- reform you it transforms you the agent of transformation in each instance is the spirit of the living god uh, i mean if you look at ezekiel 37 um, there's a there's an odd thing that's happening in ezekiel 37 first Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy to the dry bones uh, that um, he's told to command them to live and so he prophesies to the dry bones and you see bone coming to bone um, sinews coming on flesh coming on so he prophesies and they all come together that's from verse 4 to 7 let's just read that Ezekiel 37 4 to 7 I just want to show you a way to begin to activate resurrection faith in times such as this ezekiel 37 verse 4 to 7 then he said to me prophesy to these bones and say to them dry bones hear the word of the lord this is what the sovereign lord says to these bones i will make breath enter you and you will come to life I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons but there was no breath in them. But there was no breath in them. So initially when he prophesies, bone comes to bone, uh, the body is formed. But then he is commanded to prophesy to the breath or to the ruah or the spirit to give life to the fleshed out bones. It's almost like this repeat of the scene from Genesis 2-7 where God takes the dust of the earth and he forms man. But now that man is formed, man still is lying on the ground. And then it says God breathed and man became a living soul. And it's the same motif being played out here. Where the bones have come together, everything has been fleshed out, but there is still no breath. And then he begins to prophesy to the breath because verse 9 says... Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath entered them and they came to life and they stood upon their feet, a vast army. And so here's what I want to draw out from it. When we yield, when we yield. to when we yield to the laws, to the laws of the spirits operation. I'll explain it. When we yield to the laws of the spirits operation, we can command we can command the operations of the Spirit we can command the operations of the Spirit and fully count on Him and fully count on Him to work his mighty power. First, Ezekiel goes and prophesies as he's been commanded. And when he prophesies, bones, sinews, flesh come together. But that ain't enough. That still doesn't bring life. Then he's told to command breath, command ruah, command the spirit because people are still arguing about whether Ruah there means just uh, wind or breath or whether he's talking about the four winds of the earth whether he's talking about the spirit I would argue that it is both breath and the spirit but the point is this after reading Ezekiel 37 when we yield to the laws of the spirit's operation and that's what I'll touch on before we end when we yield to the laws of the Spirit's operation, we can command the operations of the Spirit and fully count on Him to work His mighty power. Which means that when I begin to, uh, when I begin to uh, obey, submit to, take on, learn, practice the rules of how the Holy Spirit operates, then... I get to have the privilege of commanding the operation of the Holy Spirit here on earth and I can fully count on him to work his mighty power. Uh, give, Give us another example, Jacob. Okay, so it would be like me yielding to the king of a nation saying, I yield to the ways you do things. Ah, let me give you a better example. So, Joseph yielded to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to him, you will be my second in command and so joseph yielded to pharaoh's ways pharaoh said to him you will be my second in command and then look at what happens joseph begins to tell pharaoh how to prepare for the famine pharaoh agrees and now pharaoh's purposes are accomplished it is almost the sense of you saying to a king, I'll operate by your ways. The king says, you're an expert in these areas. Why don't you tell me what you want done since you know my ways? And as you begin to speak it, I will, by my authority, make it happen. Do you understand? If you don't, please ask me. I wish you were here. It's like me being appointed by the king because I have learned to submit to the ways of the king. I know how he thinks. I know how he operates. I've learned the laws of, a, of his operation. Now that he has seen that he can trust me, he says, Jacob, now, since you know my ways, you tell me what I should do. You give the command, and I will do it, because I know you know my ways. I will do it. Do you want to hear another instance where this happened? Crazy story. Joshua turns to the sun and turns to the moon and says to the sun and the moon, stand still. That should have knocked the galaxy out of its orbit. And for 24 hours, the sun stands still and the moon stands still, till the slaughter is complete. And then it goes on to say, no other time in the history of man had one ever done that. Where is it? Where is that scripture? Can someone find it? I know it's in Joshua, but can you do better than that? I can't hear you. Joshua 10. Okay, Joshua 10. Um, verse? verse 12. Look at it, guys. This is exactly what I'm trying to say. And then we'll talk about what are the two of the, operation, of the Spirit's operation. Look at what it says. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Look at it. Look at what he's saying. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. It's not the Lord said to Joshua in the presence of Israel. It's Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. It is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since A day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Do you understand guys? That when we yield to the laws of the Spirit's operation. We can command the operations of the Spirit. And fully count on Him to work His mighty power. Any questions? because I'm going to end with this last statement, which has three subsections. I'm kidding. Not really. Okay. So what are the laws of the Spirit's operation? What are the laws of the Spirit's operation? Um, You can see it in Genesis 1-2 you can see it in john 663 you can see it in revelations 4 2 what you see is that the word and the spirit work in tandem the word and the spirit work in tandem so in genesis 1 2 the word is let there be light but before the word was spoken. The spirit of God was already hovering over that which was a chaotic mass. And as the word was released, the spirit was already there. The spirit knows the heart of God was already there. You go to John 6, 63, and it's Jesus speaking. And now Jesus says, this, uh, says it differently, but it's the same word spirit tandem. He says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. You go to Revelations 4, 2, and it says, and I heard a voice saying, come up higher. And then the spirit of the Lord took me. There is this idea of either the Word coming first and then the Spirit or the Spirit coming first and then the Word or the Spirit waiting for the Word or the Word being spoken before the Spirit can do something. It is this Word-Spirit tandem that you and I have to begin to practice, use, understand, fathom right now because when you speak forth, when you speak forth, the authoritative... Word, be it logos as in what is already written or rema—that's how I'm defining it right now—as in spoken to you specifically. When this happens, wh- when this, when you speak for the authoritative word, the spirit enters the void. The spirit enters the void. to quicken dry bones. The spirit enters the void to quicken dry bones, to quicken cities, to quicken situations, to quicken nations. You name it. Guys, we don't pray to God, we pray with God. Don't make a theology out of it, but it's a very important statement. We pray with God. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I must know his will. I know some of you have heard me say this maybe a million times or a little less, but we pray with God. Your prayer team is very powerful. It is Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit and you and the body. The intent, though, is to understand what Christ is saying and begin to speak it so the Spirit of God can begin to work it. And you, in doing this, become part of the history of God here on earth. Only now you begin to chronicle it because you are watching it unfold. Oh man, the number of books you will not be able to write because you didn't chronicle it. But you cannot chronicle it unless you get involved in the works of God. We are scribes that are keeping tabs on what God is doing here on earth and during war during famine during lack during disease during times like this during the days of Ezekiel during the days of famine that is one that is when history should be written by people who watch god at work pray with him Because you're the voice of God. Pray with Him because you're the army of the Son. Pray with Him because you're the community of the Spirit. Hear me again. Pray with Him because you are the voice of the Father. Pray with Him because you're the army of the Son. Pray with Him because you're the community of the Spirit. And so this week ahead, I'm hoping as a church that we can practice these truths because I'll send you outlines, not just for Vancouver, for different nations in the world, so that we can pray a certain way and then chronicle the results. Go ahead, Jeevan. A question? Yeah. From Justice chapter 10, verse 14, there has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to him, human beings. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So I'm confused how we can command the Spirit if it says that it was the only time before. So the answer, uh, do you want to use the mic to ask that question? Hello. Go ahead. Joshua 10, verse 14 says, There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So the question is, I am confused how we can command the spirit if it says that it was the only time before or since that God has obeyed a human. Yeah. So what is being made there is a historical statement by Joshua or whoever wrote that book. It is not a prophetic statement, it's a historical statement. And so let's assume this was in 1965 that it was made. Then since 65 to 2020, there have been many Joshuas, many Ezekiels, many um, Peters, many Jacobs, many Jevons, who having seen what God did here, take it as a um, pattern of God to be um, uh, repeated whenever God commands. Part of the reason history must be chronicled is so that a generation may rise up that can repeat it. Part of the reason Judges 2 verse 10 is the saddest statement in the Bible is because her people did not repeat it. It is the saddest verse in the Bible. Her people did not repeat the history of God and The generation that came after did not know what they could do and who God was. And while this truth must not be messed with, as in this written word, must not be messed with, this is not the Alpha and Omega. This is a book that chronicles what God has allowed us to see. And we use this now to begin to have God keep revealing who he is yeah alrighty let's end with that song um, these are the days of Elijah and this is a song of preparation as in uh, I'm preparing you as the voice of God I'm preparing you as the army of the sun preparing you as the community of the spirit for a time such as this as we sing it yeah so just get up stretch and uh do not, um, do not, um, do not switch off. We'll switch off only after we're done. Yeah, cool.